This is Purple Radio On Demand. This episode of Chalkboard Ultra is dedicated to Brian Hoyland, one of the most curious people I have ever met, who spoke to me many a time about the mystic arts. Welcome back to the wonderful world of Chalkboard Ultra. I'm Louis. I don't know where Sam's got to, though. Don't worry, Louis. I'm here. Where the hell did you spring from? Don't you mean, where the hell did I string from? No. What? (laughs) This episode's main topic hopes to address, of all things, the universe and its complex structure. Hang on. Didn't we do that already with the standard model? I know. But we're going deeper. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. String theory again? Deeper. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Today, we are diving into the inexplainable. Magic, the mystic arts, and ultimately, how numbers could tell us our fate. When you think of magicians, who comes to mind? Well, you've got the modern theatrical magicians, Dynamo, David Blaine, and of course you've got the fictional ones, though to class them as magicians might be a bit too far. No, you're right. Harry Potter, Merlin, Gandalf, I think they'll be classed as wizards. Well, that's the thing. What do they have in common? Magic. They can all perform magic. But it's in different ways, right? Yeah. It it seems as though magician is just a catch-all term for various forms of magic. You have these spell-casting wizards, such as Merlin, Gandalf, but you've got warlocks and druids, and just some people who have practiced sleight of hand. The point here is that it's hard to track down the origins of what constitutes as magic. We could give it our best shot, though. Go ahead. Like many a chalkboard episode, we have to turn back the clock a little bit. Pre-technology, our understanding of the world was shaped by great philosophical thinkers who you know, guided by their biases and thinking of the time, would seek solace and healing powers from nature. So are you inferring the way that we perceive magic today can probably be traced back to the societal and religious beliefs in the early centuries? Oh, absolutely. And I picked up a book on this. This is what the whole episode is is based on. It's called The Book of English Magic by Philip Cargom and Richard Haygate. Louis studying it. Very intensely. Richard? Richard Haygate, not uh, not our Richard. Speaking of, by the way, where where is he? Oh, didn't we give him a typewriter? Give him something to do? Yes, we did. Should we check on him? You alright there, Richard? Ah, he'll be fine. What's he doing? Probably summoning a demon. You know what he's like. Fair enough. Well, I was walking... I was in town doing some secret Santa shopping. Uh, you know, with for no one in particular. And I came across the HMV bookstore. Now, do you remember HMV? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. They, they did like vinyls, CDs, all of that. Well, they've now become a bit of a brand because not enough people buy CDs and DVDs anymore. But no, there was just a book on offer, the Book of English Magic. And I turned like to a random page in the book and it was something to do with numerology. And I stopped reading and I thought, I'm going to have to write an episode on this. So I bought the book. But it's been noted by the writers here that you had magicians claiming they had special connections with God, who are really just fortune tellers reading from randomized cards, or magicians advising the royal family, who really were just astrologers. 
So where does the link between maths and magic come into? Well, we want to talk today about one practice in particular, that being Freemasonry. The story begins with one of the most influential figures in British cultural history, in my eyes, uh, Elias Ashmole, who was the first recorded person initiated as a Freemason. Ashmole was a man of many things, a scientist, a lawyer, an alchemist, an astrologer, and a mathematician. He was one of the founding members of the Royal Society, and as an antiquarian, someone who studies the past and has a rather big interest in books and collectibles, was a conservative and is the earliest known person to be called a Tory. Really? That's, yeah. that's fascinating. But what makes Ashmole so prevalent in the practices is that he believed he was chosen. He was born in Lichfield in Staffordshire, which is believed to have a lot of cultural significance based on its connection with ley lines. Those being... Ley lines are straight geographical lines that connect historical landmarks together and were used as navigation points in the early centuries. It was believed that wherever they cross, it became a link between our world and another somewhat magical world. Litchfield, situated atop many crossing ley lines, became a known location for healing. And so, after building its cathedral, the city became a major hub for Christian practice. And here you can make all the connections with God and fortune-telling and other mystic arts. Alright, alright, so we jumped from maths to magic to Freemasonry to ley lines... Are you on the right show here, Sam? <laughs> I am, I am. Just listening. Look, as a boy, Ashmole was fascinated by the different varieties of magic, especially alchemy. And by the English Civil War of the mid-1600s, I think it was, he immersed himself with codes and ciphers leading him into the world of mathematics. Well, people get into mathematics for different reasons. Oh, absolutely. And it is believed that Freemasonry originated from mathematical ideas. A mason, as you might know, is involved with construction, and those ideas stemmed from early architects who enjoyed studying geometry, and in particular the study of shapes and their spiritual meanings. Like a pentagram. Yeah, exactly. And one other speculation is that masons, being architects and construction workers for local villages, had strong connections with people all over the country. Well, that's just the power of the six degrees, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Well, as a mason, you need to have access to materials and therefore to the people who source and shape those materials, and overall the people in the village who require you to help build things. You really are just a hub for information. Why, thank you. <laughs> but that is how a lot of people view Freemasonry today, a charitable social gathering. But some people believe in a true connection with the mystic arts. This gave the society a huge vantage point in terms of activism. Masons accepted people from any religion and was an influence for many leaders in the Theosophical Society. Something a religion and metaphysics podcast would like to explore further, no, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Going back to the main point again, we are doing a lot of tangents. Elias Ashmole, after being initiated into Freemasonry, allowed himself to use so-called high magic that involved casting charms and spells, just like everyone's favourite wizards. But he was more fond of so-called low magic, which was philosophical alchemy and mathematics. Why would mathematics be a low magic? Well, it's only called that due to its immense practicality with only so few ideas. You can think of elementary number theory. You studied that, right? Yes, yes, I, it was a lot of fun. Elementary number theory being the study of numbers and how they relate to each other. Yeah, exactly. It was the power of simple objects, numbers, that laid the groundwork of geometry for Freemasons. 
and so necessary to the architects of religious places of worship, such as the cathedral, mosque, temple. So can we say that Ashmole is up there with Newton, Leibniz as great Enlightenment-era mathematicians? Well, I'm led to believe that Freemasonry is, I think, less of a tool in mathematics than calculus. I suppose so. However, you never know. In the future, students at Durham will be taking Freemasonry 1 as a first-year module. The practical exam will be pretty cool. The concept of numbers being magical by nature is one that probably originated with Pythagoras and his cult of mathematicians. Iambicus quotes him saying, Number is the ruler of form and ideas and is the cause of gods and demons. I think it's mainly the cause of stress for students' mathematics. <laughs> You're so right there. This idea has, at times, taken a more hellish turn in various texts. 666 is said to be the devil's number, and the five-sided pentagram is a sure way to summon it. And let's not forget the number 13, which, by sheer coincidence, is this podcast's episode number. On a lighter note, it's fascinating to learn how early civilizations discovered the genuine magic of numbers. Merely the process of counting has uncovered a whole host of other powers. Things like counting landmarks before reaching destination, the number of days a crop takes to sprout, or to grow, the cycles of moon, the number of animals you own, etc. The very core of our society is based on numbers, which by no chance led to the idea of a hierarchy. There were people who were born mathematical and could use a mental arithmetic to their advantage. They made it their job. If you can count the number of stars in a constellation and convince people you can read them, there's your monopoly. And there you have the birth of astrology. This being that your birth date encodes important information that explains your true personality and perhaps even your future. But then, according to today's scientists... Numerology and astrology are complete nonsense. It could be said that this mysticism forms a foundation for what we study in this era, though. Chemistry is thought of as the untangling of alchemy. Mathematics attained its notions from numerology. And yes, modern physics can debunk a lot of astrological signs, but at the end of the day, the study of the heavens had to begin somewhere. Science and magic are equivalent through the eyes of a numerologist, but it's best left as an exercise for the listener to choose whether or not numbers control our fate. I'm going to take that quite literally. What do you mean, Sam, by exercises? <laughs> if you look hard enough or do a quick Google search, there are many ways in which numbers will give you a magical insight into your character and soul. One of them is by analysing your name, which I actually have an exercise here in this book for you. Are you ready for this? When English magicians first started to work with numerology, they used the Pythagorean system which equated the letters of the alphabet with numbers, not quite like your Caesar code, as some people taking cryptography codes will understand as A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and so forth. It's not just like that. I've got the table here, and Louis, your name under this system comes to 65, and then you've got to do the digit sum until you get a single integer. Uh, two? Two. Now... In this text, it says, Someone whose name adds up to number two is likely to be a gentle, charming individual who likes peace, harmony, and beauty in their home and relationships. You are a peacemaker. Gentle, sensitive, intuitive, diplomatic, cautious, indecisive, considerate, kind, cooperative, and charming. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think part of it was made up. Sam, but... <laughs> wasn't made up at all. It's written in the script. You have to trust it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The script never lies. The script never lies. 
I do feel I know myself better. I mean, what about you, Sam? Have you... Go on, I'll, I'll pass you over mine. I'll tell you that my digit sum comes to number seven. Well, Sam, you're a scholar, philosopher, and mystic. I hope in that order. <laughs> Introspective, serious, reclusive, reserved, dignified, intuitive, studious. Someone whose name adds up to number seven is likely to be a natural recluse or, your, or hermit. A natural what? <laughs> a recluse. A recluse or hermit who prefers study to socialising and who is more interested in the spiritual or philosophical inquiry than in amassing fame or fortune. So there we go. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> For that, that so, yeah, we might put something up on our Instagram page where you can... I'll, do, I'll write some code. I'll, I'll figure out something else. But it's not just your name we can do this with. Others say that the number derived from your day of birth symbolizes how you see yourself. Or adding together the numbers for your full birth date, including the 2003, which probably wasn't an easy task, thanks to Tom, last week. But that tells you your destiny or your fate. There's so many ways to view it. But just as there's loads of systems of astrology, there are many different ways of working with numerology. Some numerologists use the Hebrew Kabbalistic system, for example, which treats the numbers 11 and 22 as special, while others might relate their system to other kinds of astrology. But, yeah, interestingly, I do feel like I know myself better. But surely you can't have everyone categorised into those nine archetypes. I mean, they're a bit arbitrary, recluse, dignified, yeah, cautious. You'd, you'd be exactly right. It probably comes down to two reasons. The first being the nature of the statements themselves, and the second tying in with randomness. You think you've activated some neurons there, Sam? <laughs> the statements themselves don't have much meaning. They are what's called Barnum statements, named after psychological manipulator Phineas Taylor Barnum. They are general personality characterizations that could apply to almost anyone. Things like, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. Or perhaps, at times you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. They're often heard as a response from fortune tellers, psychics, or perhaps read as some part of horoscope. It's not a hard task to see that it is unlikely to have 22 million people with a specific birthday all conforming to the same personality traits. So the catch-all Barnum statements allow for a deceptively vague description of a person's character. And this leads down to the Fora effect. Someone interpreting a statement will superficially believe it to be extremely unique and personal, even if there's no hidden meaning and it's just as vague as any other personality assessment. Does this have to do with Bertram Fora and his psychological tests? Absolutely it does. What, what do you make of it? Well, as the story goes, Bertram Fora gave his 39 students an individualised personality description based on some loose test results. When asked to rate the accuracy of the description on the scale of 0 to 5, there was a class average of 4.3. Pretty accurate, right? Saying that the descriptions Fora came up with matched their personalities. Ah, but here's the catch. It was later revealed that Fora gave each student exactly the same paragraphs of text, all which were known as Barnum statements and taken straight from an astrology book. You'll find the Fora effect hidden in plain sight, amongst various BuzzFeed quizzes and other wild personality tests. It means that we cannot fall into the traps of the Mathemagician's Apprentice. 
Once you start to think about what numbers mean magically and symbolically, you'll start to seek hidden messages in all kinds of places that they're not meant to be. House numbers, car registrations, historical dates. It's a conspiracy theorist's fallacy. One particular example I've found is with the attack on Twin Towers, 9-11. 9-11 is the US emergency services number. 9 plus 1 plus 1 is 11. The first plane that hit the towers was American Airlines flight number 11. The names George W. Bush, New York City, Afghanistan all have 11 letters. And 11 is significant, as mentioned earlier, with the Kabbalistic system. But the point is that there's no inner meaning to any of this. It's not magic. It's just the way randomness works. So what's the moral of the story with numerology, then? It's that you can make anything seem plausible with numbers if you try hard enough. But most of the time it's coincidence. And not enough of today's society can crunch reality and crack down on what are cosmic pranks and what could actually be real enchantments. Got it. The Mathematician's Apprentice needs more Sherlock and less Hocus Pocus. It was the famous science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke who wrote, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Sometimes the quote is known as, Magic is just science we don't understand yet. It's a wonderful quote. It suggests that if all of the fundamental ways in which we interact with nature cannot be explained elegantly, then instead we should be thinking of it as a higher power governing our universe. But then, even if it isn't elegant, I'm sure it would be figured out eventually. Mm, you'd hope so. This probably links to Godel and his incompleteness theorem. Can every postulate or conjecture be proved? And if not, why is that? Do things just occur and we have to accept it? Well, wasn't it von Neumann who said, in mathematics, you don't understand things, you just get used to them? Yeah, it was. Again, you and your quotes. Hey, hey, they, they help me justify things that I'm not understanding. You know, it helps me sleep at night. This reminds me of what we said a couple episodes ago when trying to understand the origins of string theory. One of the biggest advances was suggested by Witten in 1995 called M-theory, which tries to unify all of the other string theories, the 1, 2a and 2b, blah, blah, blah. I could go down in a complete rabbit hole about this, but it supposes that they branch off one another. So you're saying that somehow by, by magic, all these, all these theories of string theory, they just come together. It is just how I said. People want to try and grab standard model and string theory and glue them together. Can it be done? We don't really know. Okay, so maybe there is some sense to that. Some things are just best left alone, and we could either say, well, it's magic or not. We'll just have to see what it is. Well, would you be happy saying that it's magic? That the fundamental force of the universe are just mystic arts from a higher dimension? Something I didn't mention a couple of weeks ago is that part of me doesn't really want string theory to exist. Uh oh? I, I'm, I'm sure my mind will change when I actually do study it. But the more I read about string theory or M theory, the more secretly hopeful I become that it's shown to be wrong. Because there's a slight skepticism saying, surely, underneath everything, it, it can't be something so sensible. So everything you've told me about those theories can just be ignored, not just debated. Because before <laughs> you said, ah, well, you know, there's not really much agreement. But now you say that, well, we could just ignore them now. I mean, subjectivity? No, 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 not quite. Maybe we're just not meant to understand it, and we do have to accept our fate of ignorance. 
Just like in Pulp Fiction, if you've seen it. Yeah, I remember Pulp Fiction. So remember that briefcase that we never got to see the glowing contents of? Imagine if you finally got to see inside it, and it was just an orange light bulb. Wouldn't you be a bit disappointed that it turned out to be so boring, regular, and predictable? Perhaps. I mean, let's say Schrodinger's cat. That's another thing. Go ahead. A, a, a box being opened and there's something there that might not be what you expect. Surely that's just part of the fun. Yeah, is that what you're saying? It's, yes. It's the idea that the unknown is something magical. That's, some, that's what keeps us going. It was even Feynman that said, physics is like sex. Sure, it might give some practical results, but that's not why we do it. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> what do you make of that? You've ruined our family-friendly <laughs> maths podcast. It's one of my favorite quotes. Helps me sleep at night. I'm sure it does. And, as if by magic, we have arrived at the end. No, I think it's that we don't get the studio for the whole day, Sam. Oh, that's true. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chalkboard Ultra. We hope you found it enlightening magical, mystical, as we did. Join us next time as we delve deeper into the wonders of mathematics. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Chalkboard Ultra and consider leaving us some feedback. Keep safe and keep well. What did you say Richard was up to? Typewriting. It's you, in his nature. You said summoning a demon. Can you make sure he's not actually doing that? All right, all right. Oh, well, he's written something. Yeah, what does it say? Well. <clears throat> the equations lost. Dance, dances there, cool ride. Something's going on. Mathematics whispers secrets in the realm of time. What's happening? Where x equals naught and despair is pride. What are you doing? In equations lost, darkness dances their cool ride. Mathematics whispers secrets in the realm of time. Stop it, stop it! Where x equals naught and despair is pride. Uh... Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.